0: Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with Zach Bitter. All right, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast. I'm your host, Zach Bitter. Today, I have a guest interview for you. So, I'm excited to bring this guest in. His name is Leighton Phillips. I've known Leighton for a few years now. And one of the things that I find interesting about Leighton is he had a similar experience as I did when it came to fueling longer endurance sports. So Leighton's background was in swimming when he was younger in the collegiate age. And then he started playing around with triathlons and eventually ultra marathons, including the ultra trail Mount Blanc later on in his life. But along the way just realized that the traditional fueling strategy for endurance athletes was not working for him personally, and began kind of going down a low-carbohydrate path to help him get to the finish line in the best way he could find. So uh, rather than just tinkering around with different options that were already available, he eventually parlayed his own experience making his own nutrition into a brand called S fuels, which is actually the product that I use today for my training and racing needs on the nutrition front. So I talked to Leighton about the whole process of fueling as a low carbohydrate athlete. He has worked closely with guys like Dan Pluz, who's been on this podcast in the past, and is going to be coming back on shortly. And, uh, has essentially like come up with a formula or a process that is, I think, a really good strategy for folks who do decide a low-carbohydrate approach is going to be better for them for some of these longer endurance races and things like that. So whether you are currently doing a low-carbohydrate diet, not doing one, considering doing one, feeling like you'll likely never do one, I think this is an interesting chat just so you can maybe understand a little bit about the hows and whys and how the process maybe differs a little bit. So I mean, there's a lot of questions that I'll get around this topic, which oftentimes is you know, what do I do differently the race, the week of the race, what I do differently the night before the race, the morning before the race, during the race, how does my fueling strategy differ and things like that. And these are a lot of questions I think uh, many people are trying to answer. And thankfully, there's some researchers out there as well who are uh, looking to help answer some of these questions too. So Leighton definitely lays out his process and what he has seen work between him and the labs that Dan Plu's runs. So. It's really cool. Interesting chat um, that I think you'll enjoy if you're interested at all in this sort of a topic. So uh, before we get rolling, just a few quick announcements. If you are in Austin or visiting Austin, come check out my group run. I host a group run on Sunday mornings. We have an 8 a.m. and a 9 a.m. starting option and we meet at Mets Park. But if you're looking for Weekly updates in terms of things that are potentially going to change, like we're not meeting this week, which is pretty rare. Uh, you can find those on the at Outliers ATX Instagram page. So I partnered with a group in town, Alpha 180. They help out a ton in organizing this run, and I always have a blast chatting with them and hanging out with anyone who shows up to the groups. So for those interested, the ADM group tends to be a little bit smaller. 9 a.m. group when there's not a race in town or close by tends to be a little bit larger and we've had up to 40 people in that 9 9 a.m. group in the past so if you want to come by definitely stop we've got options for everybody whether you're going to you want to go really slow a little bit faster a little bit longer a little bit shorter whether you're going to push a stroller with your family or ride a bike bring your dog those are all things that people have done in the past at outliers atx and you are welcome to as well uh If you want to check out some of the episodes that I've recorded and talked about in some of these intros, but have not released yet, the way to do that is through the show's Patreon page, where I upload each episode as soon as I get done recording it. And by accessing it there, you get right to the topic, no intro, no ads, right to the stuff that you're here for. And um, yeah, I also support the show by doing that. So there's some options there. You can find them out on the show Patreon page, which is just linked to the show landing page. The show landing page is zackbittercom forward slash HPO. There you'll also find the catalog of previous episodes. So if you're looking for details, topics, and just want to check up on some of the stuff that I recorded and, and released in the past, that's a great spot for it as well. It's also a spot for other support options. If you're interested and uh, that is kind of the the spot where everything is going to be the, everything I talk about can essentially be found there if needed. Um, beyond that, if you want to support the show but do it in a non-monetary fashion, there are some great ways to do that. Uh, one is to make sure you subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast listening platform if you're coming to this through audio. And the reason why that works is because that will help auto download the episodes when they come out. So you won't miss one. And that helps me grow the show, which helps me release more episodes. Also, if you don't mind sharing an episode that you like, or if you like them all, you can share them all on your social media channels. So your friends, families, and followers are aware of the topics that you're interested in. And again, helps me grow the show. Uh, Finally, before we get rolling here, uh, just a couple more things. If you're looking for some coaching services, I've got a variety of options on my website, zachbitter.com. Everything from pre made plans all the way up to one on one support, where we will be in frequent contact with one another and everything in, in between. So if that's something you're looking for, head over to zachbitter.com. You can check that out. If you're just looking to chat about something specific, you got some questions or want to deep dive on something one on one, I also have consultation options on there as well. Finally, one of the reasons why I'm recording more episodes this year is because of the support that came from Element T Element is one of the primary sponsors for the Human Performance Outliers podcast this year, and they are my go-to electrolyte supplement. I've been using their product now for over a year, and I use it in a variety of different ways. I like their warm beverage options as well as their cold beverage options. Either way, I'm getting a dose of electrolytes that are going to help supplement uh, my workouts, especially the hot weather ones in the summer here in Austin. So I've made a lot of uh, intros on this in the past about how I use them. So I think for this one, I'm just going to let you know a few different options where LMNT may be useful for your lifestyle. So some lifestyle needs of customers of LMNT have been electrolyte deficiency or imbalances that can cause symptoms like headaches, cramps, fatigue, and weaknesses, Low carb, paleo, keto, whole food diets. These type of diets they sometimes can present symptoms of uh, electrolyte loss, just because you're cleaning out a lot of the foods that would oftentimes be loaded up with sodium and preservatives, and sometimes that drop is going to create an imbalance in electrolytes. So this is a way to kind of supplement that if you have kind of gone that whole food, quote unquote, route. Another one is fasting. I know i got some lifters who practice intermittent or even sometimes long-term fasting. So when you're doing that, making keeping your hydration status up is definitely important, and electrolytes are a part of that equation. LMNT has you covered with multiple flavors, even flavorless options, and like I said, warm and cold weather beverage options as well. Also, athletes. Uh, when you sweat, the primary electrolyte lost is sodium. So athletes can lose up to 7 grams per day sometimes, especially on those hot weather days. I know when I've tracked in the past, there have been times where I've consumed well over seven grams of sodium per day. And when you just look at the amount of sweat loss I would have had on some of those days in the lifestyle, it starts to kind of make sense. And then some supplementation becomes an option, I think, to kind of help close that gap a little bit. Um, Things like muscle cramps, fatigue, and things like that are what you might notice if you aren't staying on top of hydration and electrolytes when you're in the thick of it with training. Uh, yeah, so that's, um, some of the stuff that I think are kind of primary uses for me. If you're really interested, you can always get your sweat test done, which will tell you how much sodium or electrolytes you lose per liter of sweat. And that can maybe help you dial in your strategy. Mine personally is one packet of LMNT for every two liters of water consumed when I'm out there working out. If, um, if you want to try it out and see which flavors your favorite, they are actually running a promo right now, which offers up a free sample pack that will allow you to try each one of their flavors with a purchase. So you go on there, buy one that you think you're going to like, get that sample pack for free, test all those flavors, find out which one you like the best, and then you're loaded and ready to go for, um, your, 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 your primary favorites. Mine tend to be watermelon and chocolate if you're interested. So to Find that, just go to drinklmnt.com forward slash HPO. That lets them know that you came through here and we'll get you that free sample pack. You can also access that in the show notes or by going to zachbitter.com forward slash HPO sponsors. Layton, thanks for coming on the show. Good to see you, Bob. Great to have you here. Yeah, I know it's been fun. It's uh, been a a wild week. I know we were supposed to meet out in uh, the West Coast, but now here we are. Close to the East Coast.
1: Yeah, it didn't work so well, but uh, we had a good good weekend this weekend. Yeah,
0: no doubt, no yeah. doubt. Yeah, yeah. So um, yeah, I wanted to have you on the show just because um, I think you have an interesting story and a story of innovation as well. Given uh, kind of the fueling strategy that I use for for endurance events, and um, you know, I started doing low carbohydrate endurance at the end of 2011, and just when I think of just the product. Available now versus then, is right. a different landscape altogether, almost. And when you get into the when you get into the world of endurance, though, I still think there's uh, there's a lot of uh, there's there's a lot more of um, you know your traditional fueling strategy and your traditional products and things like that. And at first, it was like kind of figuring out how to like manipulate just what you could find at the grocery store right, to, right. to match a low carbohydrate diet when yeah. you're out there trying to train and race. Yeah. Um, I want to start just kind of hearing about like your because I think that maybe has a little bit of a theme as to like why you're doing what you're doing today. So what got you into endurance sport in the first place?
1: Yeah, I grew up, uh, swimming actually, uh, mm-hmm. competitive swimming, um, high school, cross country triathlon, um, a bit of a mix of all of the above. And I was mm-hmm. kind of like, you know, podium age grouper, I guess, you yeah. know, like state title kind of work, but not national level. So, but, um, we all grew up, I guess, through that era where last 30, 40 years it was all the kind of the classic pyramid, and the, we, we all kind of almost wore a badge on our shoulder to how much carbohydrate we could, take, we could eat at a, at a meal. Um, but I think, as uh, I, both the science and both um, just as you age, you kind of realize that, there's a, that you hit a ceiling. Um, you can get away with a lot for two hour sub racing. Mm -hmm. You get into four to 48 hour multi-day racing and it just didn't stack up. It didn't work for a lot of reasons and we can get into that. Um, And when, like you said, you look in the marketplace and this was only five, six years ago, there was almost nothing, Mm -hmm. right? And uh, what was there, we just felt like, um, we meaning my wife's ex Nestle, I studied naturopathic medicine. I just felt like there was a ton of opportunity here to uh, innovate.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's funny to think back. Cause I mean, I still have people ask me this from time to time and it's like, like, well, what do you eat out there? Is that you literally have like strips of bacon and cheese and like right. <laughs> full cream or something like yeah, that. And yeah. I actually have a funny story. I had a coaching client, actually one of the very first ultra marathon clients I coached, he was all in the low carb from the get go because it just like basically set him back to his like high school, college fitness more or less. He had, right. Uh, you know, he was a good runner, a D3 collegiate runner, had some school records and things like that. And then uh, you put on about 20 pounds over the course of his like adult life, post college. Decided to kind of start taking things a little more seriously. Hired me as a coach. Said, okay, we're doing the low carb stuff too. Got into that. Lost the 20 pounds like really quickly, and then was like getting some of his best races like at age 40 uh you know after that and he would finish a race and drink basically like three thousand calories of cream like right right yeah no (laughs) i did 50 kilometers i'm gonna have to put the fuel back
1: in somehow the options were pretty limited back then (laughs) um but uh yeah i mean so it's just come a long way in the last five years and i just don't talk from an s-fuels perspective i think the industry at large but Mm. um even still there's so much work going on in labs to understand uh how to how to work with it's not just about fat it's not just about carbohydrate not just about protein mm-hmm. all of these pieces play a part and you know what choosing what the right thing uh as we say they at the right time to use we think there's uh, a lot of optimization there mm-hmm. yeah um actually it's funny because when we went we were in hong kong for nine years we you know, back there, you go through the aid stations, it's like rice and rice balls and things yeah. like this. And then we went to Europe and we went to, to UTMB and like, it was the cheese and the bacon and yeah. the baguettes, yeah. right? Yeah. So maybe they um, weren't
0: too far off. Right, yeah. yeah. The but right then, lines. you know,
1: in, in, in the US and even Australia, it's more the classic uh, simple sugar sweet type mm-hmm. of oriented uh, carbohydrate sources in the aid stations. So even culture has a bit of a, a twang to what's used around the world. yeah.
0: Yeah, for sure, you get the different aid stations and stuff. Yeah, so.
1: yeah, yeah. And you
0: eventually decided to do some ultra marathons, right? When when, right. when did that fall? Was that before or after triathlon type stuff? Or?
1: I I actually stopped triathlon from about uh, nineteen ninety, and I didn't start doing marathons and ultras. We were living in Singapore, and and that was two thousand six, seven, eight around that space. So a big big space of not doing a lot of competitive uh, endurance racing. In Singapore and then later in Hong Kong, um, a lot of there's a lot of the North Face, um, uh, what do you call it, Uh, series was all through Mm -hmm. Asia. And uh, then there was the Hong Kong 100. So I did uh, a bunch of 50K to 100K and then I qualified for UTMB, um, but mostly through Asia. And um, Hong Kong, it's like it's either up or it's down, there's nothing flat. So, um, but I I loved it, and uh, I think it was at that point where I was still leveraging the traditional 30-year-old, what was available on the market, uh, on the shelf, which was classically high-carbohydrate-based, and I just started noticing that my, uh, and this was really what first triggered, it wasn't performance, it was a much more inflammatory reaction to high mileage, high volume, and it got to a point where I stumbled into some of Tim Noakes' work. Uh, some of Jeff Volick's work, and I felt like there's, you know, there's more to this. Uh, mm-hmm. My naturopathic medicine, I totally bought into where they were going. Um, and the more I got into it, and just like you said, I was, you know, in the pantry with my with my wife, just testing <laughs> products um, off the shelf in terms of fusing together MCT oils and stuff like that. And it wasn't elegant at first, but that's where it started. And um, you know, we, we went through a ton of development, what we thought was working in a given season turned out in the following season that it wouldn't work, so yeah. <laughs> we, we went through several years of development before we actually first had a product.
0: Yeah, so when you when did you officially
1: kind of transition away from moderate to high carbohydrate to lower carbohydrate? I did it in an off-season around 2017, I guess it was, uh, maybe 2016 it was, and um, I really just wound back my volume. I started changing my diet to low carb, bit, which really, I would say what I did was, and I'm not saying this is what you need to do generally, but it was low to no grain, mm-hmm. uh, particularly wheat, um, took out anything sweet, juices, all that. I basically stopped using anything off the shelf from a um, you know, classic gels, uh, sports drink type of product. And I I shifted across to really uh, water and some electrolytes and some MCT, that was where I started. Mm -hmm. And um, that was 2016. And the inflammation, I I rapidly saw that like within a few weeks of doing say, 20, 30 kilometer runs, that um, the two hours and then the two day kind of the inflammation was just way down. And that's what really got me to double click on, I really think there's something here. Yeah. Um, but at that point, we were just playing around in the kitchen. Yeah. There's nothing commercial <laughs> about it. Yeah, it's interesting. I had
0: uh, uh, Paul Larson on not too long ago, and he was sort of echoing a little bit of what you just said in general. He's like, really like a great starting point for a lot of these athletes who have been kind of like into the high carb, the sports product side of things for, for a while, and, and they're not finding that working for them any longer is just like rather than trying to like send them straight down a strict ketogenic diet is like let's just get to some whole foods right because if you when you get to some some whole foods now all of a sudden like you're just going to reduce your carbohydrate total by default because you're getting rid of the juices which are almost basically all sugar like any sports drinks that are all sugar and yeah, and if you remove another component like a grain or something like that for whatever reason, now you, you pulled up another big lever that's going to just, whatever you replace that with is probably not going to be as high carbohydrate as that yeah, was. And yeah. So then you, you move the needle a little bit more and and then you have the training lever as well. So in yeah. terms of where their fat oxidation rates and their fueling needs on race day, just you know a little bit of just um, adjustments end up kind of skewing you towards it anyway.
1: Yeah, and like in the early days, we were we actually first developed a training product and that was, what would you say, more um, clinically a low-carbohydrate, higher-fat type construct, and it still mm-hmm. is today, our training product. And it's purpose-built to maximize fat oxidation and not trigger insulin responses, which you know stop basically fat oxidation. So mm-hmm. that's where we started and that's when we met. You You, you mentioned Paul there, but we connected with Dan Pluz, and he he was similarly kind of working the diet but hadn't found a product on the market he saw what we were doing we started collaborating with Dan he had a campaign to go after the world record in Kona for the Ironman Um, and we only had our training products so we really built his nutrition around training up to the race and then in the race he still had to fend for himself it wasn't (laughs) until a year or so later that we fully developed a racing product range and that's when we also got sensitive to the fact that it's not just about fat oxidation. You have to also maximize carbohydrate oxidation. And the magic happens when you've got both of these simultaneously happening. Mm-hmm. And uh, in, that's what our lab data, we can talk more about just fat ox rates and things, what we've found in some of the elite athletes. Yeah. Um, because, you know, the, the numbers speak for themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, we can talk about that. Yeah, let's, let's talk about the lab
0: data because I think that's interesting because I think there's like, I mean, having someone like Dan Plews or Paul Larson or these guys who actually, like, work in labs has got to be such a great asset because, I mean, there's there's a lot you can learn without published literature that just doesn't get to that stage. But you can see happening as, like, professional athletes or athletes in general just move through these labs and they can see these numbers and how they change or don't change based on certain protocols. And, um, yeah, so I'm, like, I'm interested in that. Like, is there uh, – obviously, there's the lever you can pull – to improve your fat oxidation rate by just training right yep. and then you can sort of pull another level by just manipulating where you're placing your carbohydrates so like maybe rather than loading up on bagels and juices and things before you go out for your run maybe just do it fasted maybe you still have the same amount of carbohydrates later in the day but you sort of pull that lever and fat oxidation rates there but then the bigger lever i think in terms of really moving the fat oxidation rate is going to be the reduction of carbohydrates yeah so Let's talk about the data on how that kind of plays out with people following those sorts of protocols and what we're seeing in terms of numbers.
1: Yeah, I mean, early on, uh, we have put some elite athletes through it. Um, And it's interesting because I think sometimes you look at the the physical shape of an athlete and you think they're fit. Yeah, right. (laughs) You put them in the labs and even the most, I mean, we're talking Olympic medalists in some cases. Not all the data suggests that they're efficient, mm-hmm. and uh, even between the run and the bike, in the case of triathletes, the numbers that were coming up in the labs on how efficient they were changed dramatically. And we just assume uh, you you run at a certain intensity, or you bike at a certain, or you swim at a certain intensity, that your fat and carb oxidation rates the same. Well, it's not the case at all. We find mm-hmm. so. Um, I, I, maybe just to backtrack and explain what we're talking about. Sure. Essentially. Um, you can you run a VO2 max test which you basically have a, a mask over your nose and your mouth and it's basically looking at the exchange of carbon dioxide and oxygen coming in and out of the body and it's using with, through sensors how much of that is happening as a function, as a proxy to calculate how much you're burning either fat or carbohydrate. And in the test you basically start at a low intensity and you start ratcheting up the intensity and you see how then at what point the switchover happens between when you're like sitting like we are now, we're basically burning fat, mm-hmm. very little carbohydrate. Obviously, as you increase the uh, intensity, carbohydrate goes up and fat starts coming down. Now, that crossover point, and actually the crossover point itself is a bit of an artifact in the data. It's not really meaningful in itself. But what is important is, the, the, the real, in real terms, the amount of fat you're uh, oxidizing per minute at certain intensities. Mm-hmm. And we had some athletes that when they first came into Dan's labs were at a half of a gram per minute. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there was, and you'll find this with most athletes, there will be a dramatic improvement in about a 12-week horizon. And then it will continue and then it will plateau. That continuing can be anywhere from that 12 week to two years uh, before it plateaus. In the case of this particular athlete in 12 weeks we went from a half a gram to a gram of fat being burnt per minute and he went from 135 watts to firstly 260 watts and then in two years though he was at 1.8 grams of fat per minute and he was doing that at 300 watts of power Mm -hmm. So a lot of there is a lot of uh, innuendo out there on, suggesting that as you rely more on fat, you lose your top end uh, power and performance. And your performances would say that doesn't seem to be the case. And certainly we've seen uh, again um, Ironman athletes winning the age group at um, at the World Championship. Uh, you know, they, they, they're sub three hour marathoning mm-hmm. after 180 k on the bike and the three 3.8 3.9 uh, k swim. So, you know, um, we don't think that's the case, but I would say that in every one of those cases, and even yourself, Zach, you know when you get to race day, you want to leverage both carbohydrate and fat. Mm -hmm. So um, the lab data is really just a way to firstly baseline, well, where is my fat ox at? And, you know, how, as we begin to make adjustments in diet and exercise, uh, how much can we actually move that along? One key point I would just finish off with saying there is that yeah, training has an impact, but we've seen elite athletes, you know, doing twenty-five plus hour weeks in training, still fat ox rates are pretty average. Yeah. And secondly, uh, in Dan's study, this is outside of the labs in terms of looking at they do meta analysis on multiple fat ox studies. They looked at 300, 350 or three hundred and eighty uh, athletes, I think it was, who went through a fat ox VO two max study. The most influential factors was exercise duration, meaning how long single sessions are. And the second was the diet outside of exercise. Mm-hmm. And it was how much fat do you have outside of exercise to eat? How okay. much, yeah. So these are key determining factors. So for that
0: first one is that that's almost independent of diet where like if you took anyone and just put them out there long enough, you're going to see their fat ox improve just based on their body's demand for a fuel source at those extreme levels of duration. But then, there's another level on top of that you that you can achieve through dietary manipulation. Correct, okay. correct, correct. And that makes sense. And I think that's always been, you know, I wouldn't call it a counter argument, but just a, a comment I've seen from time to time too is like, well, why do a lower carbohydrate diet when even on a moderate high carbohydrate diet at a certain point within a race, perhaps you're going to see shifts towards it. And like, to me, that didn't intuitively make a lot of sense because I mean, I've done these races on a high carbohydrate diet yeah, we and all like, have right right and there is an experience that is quite different when you hit that point in a race where you're demanding the same amount of energy but no longer producing the pace that you were before and um it, you know to me that was like that said there's got to be something with improving them further to the point where now that intensity which you're participating at can be matched with your fat sources and very small amounts of carbohydrates so that you're not Kind of fighting that battle of an exogenous fuel source to the degree that you maybe need to sustain that pace
1: yeah and like i mean this is all about glycogen you know retention and um if you're if you're not uh leveraging that whole part of your of your substrate metabolism i.e fat oxidation if you're not leveraging that you are you know highly dependent on that exogenous intake of carbohydrate and we know that You know, the number one reason for not finishing these races is still gut problems, and most of the uh, sports science data would suggest after 50 grams per hour, you get into high risk of GI distress issues, so, um, you know, I I still feel, you know, fairly passionate about seeing some of the industry's approaches to gut training with high fructose and high maltodextrin mixes in training. And trying to train the gut, I have a, I have a real problem with that, and we can talk about that. But the safer, higher-performance approach, I think, is getting that fat ox right and then supplementing it on race day with carbohydrate at a lower amount um, to, for performance and for mitigating gut risk uh, issues.
0: Yeah, it seems like it would make more sense to leverage what you have and then supplement on top of it versus like, it's it's almost like the nutrition's the, the nutritional like similarity of like oh I can just eat all nutrient void foods and then take a multivitamin and be okay right It's right, like or right. you could just eat nutrient dense food and if there's a small gap somewhere drop a little bit in to optimize It's right. like I kind of see those as kind of similar similar thought yeah, processes yeah, right And then when you get to the gut training stuff too it's like that's that's also out there in terms of like actual usability or provability in terms of how it's actually going to work or play out for the for anybody still a concept exactly so it's like i have a hard time i i i appreciate concepts and people exploring these limits that we thought were there but it's like you you should probably be open to the exploration on both ends of the spectrum then versus saying one is okay and the other's not or vice versa but
1: uh you know exploration is absolutely i'm all for that's why we're all kind of in this endurance sport exploring how far we can go but um my problem with the exploration around gut training of high uh, simple sugars and even starches is that a lot of that, when you look at the formulation, is fructose-based, and there's plenty of studies that would show just on a sports performance, let's put, let's put the issues with fructose associated with uh, you know, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease um, or chronic disease, let's put a ladder aside. We know that fructose blunts aerobic development. If you have two athletes and they both do the training, uh, identical training, and they measure their aerobic development, that one that's on fructose will have a less blunt, will have a more blunted effect on the training to their aerobic development. We know that the GLUT four transporter that helps get glucose into the muscle cell gets impacted negatively by taking fructose. So, my problem with Uh, remember that the training of the gut, when they talk about that, it's about in training on a daily basis, you know, taking this on. Mm -hmm. It's no longer about every three months when I race, I take it. Yeah. So uh, I think this is a chronic impact then of fructose. And Dan's got a paper up on his uh, IQ site where he talks about, you know, professional triathletes who look, you know, they're probably running at sub 10% body fat. Mm -hmm. They put them through a DEXA scan and there's fat all around the liver, right? Mm-hmm. And they move across to a low-carb, high-fat diet, and they've had 45% reduction in fat around the liver. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you, with fructose, you turn into a, your liver turns into a fat-generating machine that may not represent itself out in the subcutaneous fat, mm-hmm. but the most scary fat from a chronic disease perspective is the visceral fat. And... You know, I, my my sense is we're seeing a lot of that. You turn up to a a, a race these days, you'll see a lot of the skinny fat, uh, you know, mm-hmm. characteristics. So, so anyway, I, I'm really having a a real concern. I'm fairly passionate and vocal about. I think this idea of training the gut for high carb consumption has got a real uh, problematic side in the long run for uh, for athletes
0: yeah no that's really interesting and i'll add to it too my one of my other fears and it sort of runs alongside what you were saying too with some of the athletes that you'll, you'll see at events where it's like i i would be like the idea of training your gut to the level of like what you would see someone like kipchoge do or you know, an elite athlete who is going to kind of take on that rigor in their training and fueling strategy so that on race day they can exceed 100 grams of carbohydrate per hour or whatever it is they're targeting. You take the average person who's training at like probably a third of the volume and, you know, they also have like two or three other things in life that take precedence right. or priority right. over their performance. Right. And now you're asking them to, to go out on a 60-minute easy run and take in a, a, a carbohydrate source, a refined carbohydrate source, when like they don't need to be doing that for anything other than training their gut, yeah. so it's like they're really kind of sabotaging their nutritional portfolio as a whole because they're working on a much smaller number of what they get to take in during the course of the day versus someone like myself who might be burning four or five thousand calories in yeah. day training you know for if I would decide to train my gut, like I could probably do it at like fifteen percent of my energy intake and and not have like this huge like uh, debt of calories to 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 account for the way like the average person would. Right. So I see it being kind of problematic outside of the actual act of the goal at hand as well in terms of their long-term health and well-being if they're gonna take that route and and more often than not, it isn't someone sitting down there accounting like, okay, well, I trained my gut with 650 grams of carbohydrate today, therefore I should eat 650 grams less of it at this yeah. point. No, they, they keep going on about the way they would normally. Yeah. Yeah. And then they, then they end up with a situation like you described, like visceral fat or you know, have a situation where they get injured, and now they're no longer metabolically flexible at all. Right, and they have no work output anymore, and they're they're a small frame, so the resting metabolic rate's low. It's just a recipe for disaster if things aren't going perfectly.
1: I agree, and like, there's a really interesting. uh you and I were talking about this uh, on the weekend, and that is uh, this. Uh, there was a podcast between Peter Attia and the uh, the coach of. Um, Uh, Tade uh, Picacho, two time Tour de France uh, winner. And um, just there's the he was talking a lot about, he's a sports scientist. He actually spends a lot of time in research on chronic disease associated with lactate production. Mm -hmm. And as much as he first that podcast talks a lot about the importance of fat oxidation on these athletes, he absolutely talks also about carbohydrate oxidation. Mm -hmm. But his point was it gets to a point where There's a misinterpretation by a lot of athletes where they assume that the slowing down is a function of running out of fuel. What's actually happening is they're taking on uh, that much carbohydrate and it can't shuttle the lactate back into the muscle cells to be used as further substrate for energy. And then it obviously drops out into the blood and hydrogen ions as lactic acid, and then you get this, you know, this burn, burning sensation, and that's what's slowing them down. Mm-hmm. So there's this kind of downward spiral. You see, I think we've all probably been there, where you think you're running out of fuel, and you start plowing more, and either gut problems or you start getting slower and slower and slower. Lactate production, lactates continue to build up. So, you know, training again, just raw, zone two you know, efficient fat oxidation and also training high-intensity work where it trains that shuttling of lactate from faster twitch fibers back to slower twitch fibers to take the lactate back into the cell to burn it also substrate, there's, there's the performance. There's the upside, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, but it takes training, right? You, you got, that's where we should be putting time into training.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting because when you look at just the fueling at those levels and the waste products that are going to come along the ride from metabolizing... Uh, you know, carbohydrate, it's like, you can sort of see like the potential, like some of, kind of a simplified version of what you were saying, like the amount of waste products you're going to have when you're doubling or sometimes tripling that energy intake from a refined source of carbohydrate. It's like, it, it makes sense intuitively when you think
1: about it. Yeah. Um, uh, there's also just, Zach, the, you know, we talk about fat, like it's this singular uh, macro uh, compound. Uh, there's so many types of fats, yeah. and how the fats are handled, how they're processed, what you couple it with to actually you know create some of these uh, fuels and products. Mm-hmm. A lot can be done to either improve their you know performance impact, mm-hmm. and a lot can be done to actually take away from performance impact. And you know, by far the most studies that have been done on understanding fats that. Are fastest through the gut and fastest to metabolize for energy is the medium chain triglyceride. Mm -hmm. And of those, uh, the fastest one and the most, the ones that generate the more ketogenic output is the uh, what's called the C8 and the C10 versions of that. And even those, if you look on the market, you'll see that there's attempts to cheaply put that out in the market by attaching those fats to a multidextrin um oh, at, you know, in the in the process of either spray or freeze drying and it totally defeats the purpose of what you're trying to do so we did quite a bit of work to look at how do we fuse that to a non-insulinogenic compound we chose collagen and you fuse those two together it comes through the gut really fast but it doesn't have the insulin response that's important if you're trying to maximize fat oxidation so mm-hmm. i think we talk about low carb high fat um but you know specifically around fats medium chain triglycerides is where you want to be focusing mm-hmm. uh, in an athletic context you know? yeah. yeah
0: is what's the is there a approach where it's beneficial then for the athlete to be consuming that sort of a product or that sort of type of fat in their daily diet whether it be from a food option or from supplement options so that on race day they have is it, is it similar, I guess, to training your gut to some degree where it's like having that product around at least is going to be beneficial for yeah, you to and, use it? Yeah,
1: and there's, an, there's another side to the medium-chain triglyceride outside of just the caloric energy aspect to why we're using it. Mm-hmm. Um, MCTs, because, because they're medium-chain, medium in size, if you think about that, uh, if you look at, in fact, even in pharmaceutical medicine and drug discovery today, a lot of work's been done to show that uh, drug assimilation into cells is improved dramatically by actually attaching the drug to a medium chain triglyceride fat because Mm -hmm. it comes across the gut and moves through membranes much better when it's attached to the mct you'll also see studies around mct being used specifically for gut related problems Mm -hmm. but gut membrane problems specifically so um our feeling was that aside like i say from the caloric benefit is that if you look again at the studies of sports science and endurance exercise, you'll see that the gut itself has a degrading effect on a lot of endurance athletes. The heat raises ambiently and there's a, a even more intense heat increase in the core and mixed with a dehydration, you see a degradation of the gut lining. Mm-hmm. So anything we, we felt like when we formulated the products that can help to uh, bring support to the gut lining, is a good thing so we added we use the mct and we use glutamine in almost every one of our products just for that purpose is really to ensure that the gut is really kept uh, that the membrane is really kept intact so that you're not getting the inside of the gut getting into the blood supply which creates all of this inflammation sure yeah, yeah. yeah no, that yeah. makes sense yeah, it makes sense that it's in the product
0: that you're going to be using out there too. So you're starting right. counteracting some of the negative right. repercussions of just the act of running like hundred miles or whatever happens. Yeah. you end up being being doing in the endurance. Hey folks, just a quick reminder that this episode's sponsors are my friends at LMNT Electrolytes. They have a wide range of electrolyte supplements and are currently offering listeners this podcast a free sample pack with purchase. If you are interested in checking them out and letting them know that you came to them through here, you can go to drinklmnt.com forward slash HPO or To the show sponsor landing page, which is just zachbitter.com forward slash HPO sponsors. Links to that are in the show notes as well. One topic I did want to ask you about too is like application in terms of preparing yourself, not broad scheme, but kind of before a race where, you know, people are, it's not just their intra race fuel that or the fueling strategy that changes here. It's like, well, what do I do instead of maybe carbo loading traditionally, or I say traditionally, but I think carbo loading had in its traditional approach (laughs) was much different than it is today. But we'll say, we'll use that word loosely traditionally. And, uh, um, and then like, what is the protocol like morning of, and then as you begin the competition, because most people are thinking, all right, I have my carb heavy meals the day before I have, more carbs for breakfast, and then maybe on yeah. the starting line I'm taking a gel or whatever it happens to be, and then I'm fueling immediately out the gate. What is the protocol for someone on a low carb diet?
1: Yeah, and you know I think there's there's kind of several compartments here. I mean, let's just first start with just insulin itself because um, it has a half life, right? That you need to understand its half life to understand if you get when you take carbohydrate, how long after that will your insulin still be inflated whereby it's then gonna be um, blunting your fat oxidation efficiency. And you, want to, you don't want to be getting to the starting line and you've already got a blunted insulin uh, uh, level so that, uh, sorry, I should say a blunted fat oxidation level, thereby out of the blocks, you're dependent on carbohydrates. So let's wind back. Um, firstly, I would say that, uh, like you say, there was, when, 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 when we were racing in our teens, Carbohydrate parties were actually, you know, pretty normal as yeah. part of races. Um, but let's just say that it's fair as a low carb athlete coming into race week that you might slightly increase uh, your grams. This is not a license for using simple sugars and right. garbage carbohydrate, but you might want to heighten it a little bit more just to get the liver right, back to its glycogen levels, you're coming off typically a taper, so you're less demand, Mm -hmm. so that's the first point I would make, and that's typically, you know, up to 100 grams, um, you know, and I'm talking about an athlete that's probably doing 15 hours a week training, kind of that taper week type of thing, Mm -hmm. coming back up to, and it's a a range, right, but somewhere in that 100 gram per day range of carbohydrate, now, um, where it gets nuanced to typically what we see in the more classic high carbohydrate athlete to the low carbohydrate athlete is race morning Mm -hmm. and um, I'm less worried about the night before and the reason for that is again the insulin half-life it's already moved through the liver several times it's basically lost its effect by the morning but we see on race morning a lot of mental thinking that uh, I need to take a ton of, or even a lot of carbohydrate race morning. And uh, we we worked with Dan uh, to get that looked at, and they put a, a number of athletes through the labs. And you absolutely see where you start on a higher carbohydrate hit before the, in this case, it was a lab uh, simulated workout and you could see the fat oxidation uh, efficiency being ratcheted down Mm -hmm. on the athletes that had started in the morning on a high-carbohydrate hit. And the same was not the case for having some protein or fat. So think of, if you had eggs and avocado versus a big bowl of (laughs) cornflakes, right? Which, fairly common, yeah, yeah. um, and orange juice, right? Uh, If you mix that with coffee, which inflates fat oxidation, with fat, uh, sorry, with eggs or avocado, Um, or you have cream in the coffee or what have you, you're going to hit the starting line with your fat oxidation primed, not ratcheted down and blunted. Uh, So that's the first thing we would say. And, uh, you know, when we built the products outside of racing and training, we created a breakfast series, we created bars, uh, we have a primed, uh, like a a caffeine drink. They're all the types of things that, you know, with some milk and cream in the morning and a coffee that can you know, get you ready race day without uh, blunting your uh, fat ox. Mm-hmm. When you get into the race, and we can talk about that now, it's also different. It takes about, um, depending upon intensity, and obviously everyone comes out of the blocks differently and yeah. the duration of the race has a lot to do with that too. But uh, it takes anywhere between 30 minutes and 60 minutes for these key transporters, uh, these are like channels inside of the muscle cell that move from inside of the cell to the edge of the cell and they open up to glucose. Now, either when we're sitting here, if we were to take something sugary, that sugar would trigger the insulin and the insulin would open that channel and have that transporter come to the cell edge and open up. Um, In the case of when you're exercising, you don't need to take anything, but within 30 to 60 minutes, it's usually the mechanics of the muscle movement creating calcium ions, uh, free radicals, nitric oxide, These are the things that stimulate those same channels to open up but without insulin. Mm. And why that's important is because if on that first 30 to 60 minutes of the race, I can be taking water, I can be taken out like a train product, there's no calorie load. Those channels can open up, the glucose can come in. At the same time, you haven't triggered any insulin so the fat ox can still happen. Now you've got the magic happening where both fat and carbohydrate oxidation is happening simultaneously, most efficiently. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah. So you ramp up the fat oxidation rates at the same time you're opening up the door essentially for the carbohydrates to come in right. without a negative consequence. Right. So now you have both of those peaking at the same time and then you can kind of carry on with whatever your target macronutrient is yeah. for the rest at of the day. At that
1: point, it doesn't matter so much. Mm-hmm. Your, your, your channels are open. You can take in carbohydrate. You can take in usually you just be burning fat, you know, okay. in the race. Um, I think the only question then becomes, well, what carbohydrate? And we can chat about that. Yeah. Yeah, no, we should talk about that. I think before we
0: touch on that, are you, when you're working with Dan and his athletes coming through the lab, what are they seeing from targets? Because I know, um, actually a couple things I should probably say before we move on. One is what you said about the morning fueling strategy for ultra marathons. Isn't controversial regardless of your diet. In fact, they suggest if you're on a moderate carbohydrate diet, you still abstain from large amounts of carbohydrate morning up for those exact same reasons. Yeah. So it's not something that's necessarily independent to um, to a low carbohydrate athlete that you don't want to be mainlining pancakes and cornflakes right. before yeah. your hundred mile race. Uh, the other interesting thing too, and this is sort of a side note, there's just a, a research paper recently that uh, came out that su- that suggested that. All you need is a day of carbo-loading to, re- to, to put yourself in a position to be where you need to be. So like, if you have a taper and you're increasing carbohydrates on top of your moderate to high-carbohydrate diet for four or five days beforehand and then going to the pasta dinner and probably exceeding your energy man for the day by a fair margin, which is fair if you're running 100 miles the next yeah. day, but what you put, like you said before, what you put in is probably the bigger question versus how much. And, uh, yeah, you put yourself in a situation where you're just overrunning what you actually need to do and it's not doing you any favors. Um, but then, yeah, then you get into the, to the fueling side of things. Is there a range of carbohydrate recommendations that Dan is seeing from his low carb athletes that even despite having their higher fat oxidation rates that they should be looking to get in during a day?
1: Yeah, I mean, again, it's what you're doing in training and then what you're doing on race day is different. Mm-hmm. Um, generally, again, in that 15 to 20-hour range, which probably a lot of uh, endurance athletes sit in before a week's training, mm-hmm. um, you know, so he's in the space of you're probably in the 30 to 50 Grams. So I, I would say firstly, actually, there's the transition into the first time they're transitioning where they do go close to keto mm-hmm. for a few weeks, four weeks, right? To mm-hmm. really kind of you know, cold turkey them into the meta- metabolism. Yeah. After that, it is really a function of training and load and intensity, but they're sitting between that 40 to 100 and they're throttling backwards and forwards relative to training intensity, lifestyle. Uh, time of the year, heat and cold, mm-hmm. uh, elevation levels and things like that. So um, as they get into racing, though, it's the guidance that Dan most consistently talks to is uh, 60 grams per hour. Okay, um, And it's a function of, you know, again, this is not, like I said at the start, not at race morning, not at the race start, but in the case in his world, mostly triathlon, mm-hmm. They're swimming for the first half hour, an hour anyway. So they've got their channels open by the time they get on the yeah. bike. It's perfectly so it's, set up It's perfectly set up. <laughs> up. The risk is in in, in ultra marathon and whereby you, know, you can be hitting aid stations in the first uh, 5K kind yeah. of thing. You so, could be taking nutrition on the starting on line. On the starting <laughs> line. So, so anyway, uh, the guidance generally is in that first 30 to 60 minutes, just sip on water. Uh, we have a product called Train, but either way, you, you're not hitting carbohydrate loads in that, you know, first hour. And at that point, then you're starting to get into your 60 gram per hour uh, spot. Um, And uh, again, we can talk about the type of carbohydrate. I would just say to your earlier point um, about overloading, there's the question about, you know, whether it's having any effect by taking a lot the night before. Um, The downside, of course, of of all that too, is that carbohydrate, um, you know, has a lot to do with fluid retention. Mm-hmm. And it's, you can do this. Go and test it for yourself. Is hit carbohydrate high one, one the night before. Mm-hmm. Go and measure yourself the following morning on the scales. It'll be higher. And it's not because of the weight of the carbohydrate, right. it's because it holds the fluid. Yeah. So you'll hit the starting line holding all this fluid. And you might think in your heart, well, that's good. I'm going to be hydrated. It's beyond hydration. This is like extracellular fluid. Okay. Um, and, uh, you know, you, you don't need, you spent in the triathlon world, you spend all this money on bike technology and all this, and you, you jump on the bike and, you, you know, you're a pound heavier just in fluid. <laughs> so uh, you can avoid all that, and you just don't need to do that uh, the night before. But yeah, we can talk about maybe the type of carbohydrate for a second. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, let's
0: jump into that. Um, Before, I just want to clarify one thing so the listeners don't confuse themselves with Dan's working with triathletes. When he's coming with these 60 gram per hour numbers, he's thinking of duration between
1: hours Uh, of... Great point. Great point. I mean, he's training mostly Ironman and half Ironman athletes. Mm -hmm. And that is, you know, four to probably most athlete, like his semi- or would you say quality age groupers is, is probably from the half Ironman, you know, four to five hours, and the full Ironman, probably most in the nine to 12 hours kind of space. Mm-hmm. Um, you get into most of your 100 milers, right? You know, most of the non-pro field is what? I
0: mean, 24 hours 24 is kind of the gold plus, standard of the average right? ultra runner. I want right. to break 24 hours at Western right. States. I want to break 24 hours in, or run a hundred miles in 24 hours. Right. Is like kind of the,
1: and then you get into the highly elevated races and it can be double that. Mm-hmm.
0: Right? right. Yeah. Um, so yeah, the cutoffs are 48 hours for a reason in some right. of these races. <laughs> right?
1: So and again, I just come back to what we said right at the start, you know, when you get into that kind of racing, um, It's less and less about sweet, high gram um, carbohydrate, uh, sweet, sorry, simple carbohydrate, and it becomes more starch and fat. You see the Europeans, I think, getting it right with, you know, and and in Asia with rice, and then they've got you know, uh, fatty meats and cheeses and breads and things like that. It's just dense food. Yeah, you know, Uh, and from our perspective, we use we use a dense starch, right? Mm -hmm. um, I, I just. I just think as you get into the longer races, it's not so much. You may still want high caloric load, but you may not need high carbohydrate load mm-hmm. in that. So,
0: yeah. Yeah. No, it makes sense. And yeah. yeah, and to some degree, when you're out there long enough, like, I mean, I've said this before, and I think to some degree it's true, but like, there's exceptions and then there's like contexts that you have to con- consider. And one of them is like, why eat fat or to some degree, even protein during a race when like, you know those 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 needs aren't going to be necessary during it. They'll be really necessary afterwards, perhaps. But you get into durations of like you know, where you're bypassing multiple meals, going through a night where just I think even the act of eating something is going to tell your body that like you know it's okay to kind of keep pushing on. You don't you're not in like this situation where like the energy's high, output's high, and the input is low type of a scenario, which over time is going to be bad for your energy levels no matter what the fuel source
1: yeah, is. Yeah, and there's the clinical side of the math of just calories, burn calories coming in. There's all mm-hmm. that side of it. But then yeah. there's also the you know, very real and can be measured rate of perceived exertion and taking in food, mm-hmm. right? And uh, when you get into the longer races, uh, perception Yeah. Of what's a life around you is everything. It is everything, right? everything. yeah. <laughs> and uh, I think taking in whether it's from anything as like direct as caffeine, right through to calories in any shape or form, has a dramatic effect on mm-hmm. perception. Do they know? Because I know they've researched the perceived effort reduction with carbohydrate
0: consumption during exercise, but have they looked at just any calorie source to control that with? Because I'm, I mean, that would be. To some degree, it makes sense because most people, just their minds are going to carbohydrate when they're talking about, yeah. so they just like, well, what are the athletes using? They're using carbohydrates. Let's test this. Yeah. But um, I could even see a scenario where they don't even think about trying the other stuff.
1: Yeah. I think um, there's, two, there's kind of two phases here. <clears throat> there's, like, we know that um, sweet things light up dopamine, right? Mm-hmm. And it absolutely has an implication on perceived exertion. Uh, as does caffeine at about a half a, a milligram per kilogram of body weight. Um, but then you will know that you get so far into these races and sweet things is the last thing you want. Yeah. <laughs> so then I think your mind, just from a survival perspective, does shift naturally mm-hmm. to uh, dense starches and fatty things that uh, the perception... Um, influence changes mm-hmm. but it's not that it's because you're lighting up dopamine from the sweet sensation yeah um so you know i think again it does come a lot down to this duration of of race kind of construct like we we even promote advocate the use of caffeine in high uh, high intensity training systems like hit type interval type work etc uh largely so that you know your mind can get into the into the the the, the perception the feeling of speed but you you don't feel the pain of you know the 800 repeats yeah. or, or, the, or the 1k repeats on the track right mm-hmm. so you can put a lot more in and get the training impact of it um and uh you know very different use like we also use caffeine for a very different reason outside of uh improving or i would say down regulating rpe rate of perceived exertion we also use caffeine to upregulate fat oxidation but it's in a very different uh, dosage format. You need about two and a half to three milligrams per kilogram of body weight where you can further upregulate your fat oxidation. You don't get that with a cup of tea or a cup of coffee. You need a certain dosage of it. So uh, some of these compounds are dose-related to how they play out their you know, metabolic effect in the body. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Interesting.
0: So let's talk about carb types and what maybe the best strategy is in general and then also on race day cuz i'm sure like that it's different right there's you can have different types there's different vehicles of which they get into you is there a strategy that you think is most optimal when you're trying to like again avoid digestive issues maintain energy levels focus motivation everything that's going to lead you get into the finish line sooner
1: yeah um that's like, like exactly like you say there's the gastric emptying aspect of this how fast does it move through and then there's the oxidation efficiency right Mm -hmm. um so a lot of the lab work in the early days was done on the latter on the well how how quick does it oxidize or how well does it generate its energy and i think a lot of that in the early days it was it was pointing to a mix of fructose um, and glucose they found that just one or the other by itself had less, like a slower transit time or as a slow burning. Um, and then they started mixing with multidextrins and things like that. Um, what they found was, is they got to a point where the fructose began to create these gut issues that I think most people are familiar with. Um, and then later they found out the issues with fructose on dampening aerobic development. Mm-hmm. Um, they, it was quite a bit later where they started working with some of these longer chain starches and they would apply an enzyme to them so that the starch would, would what they call branch. And by branching, it, it changed the, um, or they, they usually refer to the osmolality of it, which is all it's talking about really is a weight as it comes through the fluid in the gut of how quick can it move through the gut. Mm-hmm. And then they measured by basically you take a glucometer and you take these different sugars and they take it in and they measure at what point does your blood sugar rise to a certain amount. And uh, they measured all these athletes with that. And this, this uh, branch chain starch is really getting a lot of attention these days. And you see one by one uh, a lot of these nutrition companies beginning to shift from your classic fructose, maltodextrin mix uh, to start to incorporate this branched uh, dextrin, branched starch. The branched starch, when they do the studies, if they compare it to just straight glucose, it's about 30% faster mm-hmm. on coming through the gut. And we're not talking about, okay, so your glucose comes through in 10 seconds, and this comes through now in like uh, seven seconds. Mm-hmm. This was a, you take a full classic you know, glass or serve of a sports drink with just glucose and then they'll do the same with this branch starch and we're talking like you know 10 minutes difference Mm. so um, that's the first point is gastric emptying time and uh, we we when we went to start building a race product uh, being so strong I think it's my naturopathic medicine background on just how is this being handled in the gut was a big deal for us and we, we put that as a big design principle to the product so we use that branch chain starch that helps come in quickly and then once it's in it's only a polymer of a whole bunch of glucose so it doesn't break down to release fructose it breaks down to release glucose so mm-hmm. when it comes down into the blood and then through the liver it's not like the liver is still getting a whole fructose hit it's just glucose And then that comes out and like any form of glucose, it gets metabolized as fast as any other glucose. So we felt like, um, you know, getting through the gut fast, you know, some of these concepts of remembering, like we're sitting here now and we think about what's quality nutrition for when you're not exercising. Well, you want a bell curve where your food doesn't all drop into the blood supply really fast. You want this slow releasing carbohydrate. In a race... You don't want that. No. (laughs) When you want carbohydrate, you want it now. Yeah. So we felt like gastric emptying time was really important to be as fast as possible, have minimal effect fructose on the liver, and then just quality glucose being delivered out to the muscle cells, and we landed on this branch chain cyclic dextrin starch. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, I I do want to talk about just the
0: product portfolio in general with S-fuels because since I started using it and since the inception essentially – it has sort of branched from like this is angled towards the athlete or the endurance athlete um, to this is a lifestyle supporting thing as well. So, you know, you, 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 you hear the knock on low carb keto all the time. Well, how do you, how do you have this? How do you have that? And like, what's the substitute for this? What's the substitute for that? And some people care about that. Some people don't. Some people are just like, I don't really care. I'm going to get this new way of eating and I'm just going to lean into it. Other people will kind of want some of those similar textures some of those similar convenient options. So let's just go through the portfolio and maybe tell us what the kind of key focus is of each one of those products.
1: Yeah, we have, I guess, a product hierarchy overall. We have a living range, like a life range, which is lifestyle based, and then we have a training range, then we have a racing range. So we we talk about this live, train, race kind of construct. Mm -hmm. In the live life portfolio, which is what you're talking about, the idea of that was really to simplify and make um efficient time efficient um, whether it's athletes or just lifestylers that want to uh, adopt a low carb approach to diet and lifestyle make it easy to do that so we have you know your classic bars and things like that which are macro wise low carb high fat um, and you know I they're probably number one selling product. Um, easy to digest. Um, no sugar alcohols. That's another big thing we use no none of our products. Um, then it's so simple. And then we, and then we created a, a cereal, a breakfast cereal. We just felt like the industry was just either full of high carb cereals or cereals that were, they, they reduced the carbohydrate, but then they threw all of these sugar alcohols mm-hmm. and things like that at it. So we wanted to develop a product that didn't do either and uh, that's our keto 3 product Um, and it's just a simple way to have a dense high caloric load breakfast cereal without um, you know i think it's got like 5 grams or less of carbohydrate and that's in the starch associated with it's a resistant starch which doesn't even really get digested out into the bloodstream And then we have a really interesting product um, called transform, And the idea of that is, if you look at the macro model of a lot of high-carb you know, <laughs> foods on the shelf, you'll find that they are, you know they've, they've, they've reduced the sugar, they've uh, reduced the sodium, they've reduced the fat, and they're high in carbohydrate. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what we're trying to do with transform is invert that back to what's more natural. And that is a balance between higher fat, a lower carbohydrate. The carbohydrate is a more starch-resistant starch-based. And then we're bringing back some of that sodium back into the foods. And we use this to say, if you would try to do pancakes, uh, which traditionally could be a, you know, right there, 100 grams of carbohydrate. Mm -hmm. And we can turn that into a pancake that has like 10 grams of carbohydrate. Um, you can still eat pancakes, mm-hmm. but in this new macro profile. Or if you were to do a shake, which could be a 30-40 gram carbohydrate hit, we turn that into a 5 gram carbohydrate hit and you can still have shakes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we're trying to transform more classic day-to-day foods um, into this low-carb format and get your sodium back in. Um, and a lot of these profile of these foods is slightly sweet slightly savory and that's what transforms trying to trying to achieve Mm -hmm. we have this um, life guide which is like a recipe guide 50 recipes in there that shows classic things foods meals shakes drinks uh, breakfast meals and how do you transform them back to a low carb high fat form factor Mm yeah yeah it makes sense and i know for me it's like i
0: mean i train in essentially four seasons so like we get all the heat in the summer, it doesn't get nearly as cold as it did when I lived in the Midwest in the winter, but it gets cold enough where, right. you know, I get back from a morning run right before the sun comes up and it's still 30 degrees Fahrenheit outside. I don't necessarily want something cold and right. liquidy, but I get back from a run when it's 100% humidity and 90 degrees Fahrenheit, then like something to the consistency of a cold smoothie sounds right. great. So, right. Right. and there's, there historically hasn't been great options for that within a low carb approach. And granted, after a workout, I'm going to, have some carbohydrate but you know some berries a scoop of train a couple scoops of train usually right um some whole milk and then a scoop of uh of revival um yeah, yeah it's it gets it checks all those boxes for me and then uh also kind of has that same texture flavor like kind of nice relieving, cooling right right <laughs> when i'm not really looking to eat a full meal
1: right away after yeah and you, like that. you mentioned the fourth product there in our life portfolio range which is the revival product mm-hmm. and <laughs> revival is so we we built that as a recovery shape base it's a chocolate flavored um, drink mix if you will um, but it's really interesting the formulation of that so we start with the mct collagen again but then the big components of what make that is we use a whey protein isolate, which is fairly consistent out there in recovery shakes. Mm-hmm. But then we use a clinical dose of ketones, uh, BHB ketones, uh, six grams. And same with glutamine, six gra- five or six grams. And um, I mean, the amount of customers we have that come back said this is the fastest recovery shake I've had. And again, it's grounded in science. We know that... If you give ketones to an athlete, the rate of lysine oxidation—lysine is um, like—it's like a they use as a proxy indicator, like a metabolic marker for understanding muscle burning mm-hmm. uh, through exercise. You'll find that that reduces that that happening. Obviously, the whey protein isolate, you know, repairs the muscle tissue, and glutamine—they're using that not just for the gut, also for muscle tissue uh, replenishment. So really really successful and a lot of lot of athletes are using that as a you know post-training uh you know recovery shape
0: awesome yeah i know it works works well um yeah i think um i mean we've covered a lot here it's been i think <laughs> we i think i'm gonna call this one like the active low carb protocol or something like that because there's a lot of like it's just i get asked so many questions about the stuff we talked about essentially like well if I'm going to do this, then well I mean, people can just run it through their head. Like you think of a, making a lifestyle change like that. Like it, it's not just simple as changing the meals you're eating from the day to day basis. There's also like the pre-race type stuff, the right. inter-race stuff that also has a shift to it. So it's, yeah. it's always interesting to hear from someone like yourself, who's also worked with someone like Dan Pluz who's got access to a lab, who's seen some of this stuff run through the rigors of what's actually happening out there in the real world versus, you know, what we would maybe expect to happen or think would happen and stuff like that so
1: yeah no it's exciting but there's still a ton of innovation for sure to do like you know we're just we're just tinkering with what we can do with ketones and things like that we've got it in that revival product we think we can do a lot more with that yeah um so yeah we're we're just getting started you know yeah well it'll be fun to
0: see where you end up in the next decade or or maybe less Yeah. yeah, (laughs) yeah that's
1: right that's right Awesome. Well, thanks a bunch, Layton, for coming. Great to see you. Thanks for having us, Zach. Absolutely. It's been great. (laughs) Take care. Folks do the top.
0: Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Human Performance Outliers Podcast with Zach Bitter. Hey folks, thanks for checking out this episode of the podcast. For those of you who are regular listeners, you'll likely know I'm also a professional endurance athlete and coach. If you're looking for a little extra help with your training, In programming. I do offer individualized coaching options where you can work directly with me one-on-one. I'll personalize your plan and even scale it up to email collaboration and regular consultations. You can also access either of those on their own if you just want to contact me as you're navigating your fitness journey. I also have some ready-made plans. The ready-made plans follow my coaching philosophy and they scale from five kilometers All the way up to 100 miles, and come in three different levels. So whether you're a beginner, intermediate, or advanced, I've got something for you there. And most recently, I also just added a strength athletes' guide to endurance program, which will help someone who is primarily a strength athlete who wants to either do an endurance event for the fun of it, bolster up their cardiovascular fitness or just try something out, try something new. So those programs are built to be able to supplement a strength program so you won't have to give up on your gains in the gym while you're going after some running or endurance-related fitness goals. You can find all those things on my website at zachbitter.com. Thanks for checking out this episode.